Genetics predicts that kids in a family are different from one another. I think the enjoyment from parenting comes from watching your kids become who they are rather than trying to make them into what you want them to be because that isn't going to work very well. I'm here with Robert Plumbing. Plumbing, not plumbing. It's a made up <laughs> name, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> who are you, Robert? I'm a behavioral geneticist. That's someone who studies genetic influences on behavioral traits, which is mostly psychology, but it includes, you know, some sociology and social sciences in general. But the main thing we do is to use genetic strategies to study individual differences in behavior, like why do we differ in mental health and illness and personality and cognitive abilities and disabilities. So we use both what we call quantitative genetics and molecular genetics. Quantitative genetics are like twin and adoption studies, which I think we'll get into. And then molecular genetics is the new revolution in DNA analysis, where you actually analyze DNA itself. Okay, so why we differ from one human to another. Yes, exactly right. It, it's a critical point that people don't quite understand. Like people are often surprised to find, well, people will agree if you ask people how heritable is it is height. You know, you see people differ in height. What do you think that's due to? And people will say, yeah, that's mostly genetic. You're talking about why people differ. And they're wrong? No, they're right. They're right. And it turns out that um, the heritability, that is the extent to which genetics is important for height, is 90, say, 90 some percent. So that means 90% of the reason why we differ in height is due to inherited DNA differences. But here's where people make the mistake, is they think that doesn't refer to you as an individual. It doesn't mean I grew to be 90% of my height because of genes, and the other 10% is due to the environment. It, it refers to differences between people in the population. Why are some people taller than other people? It's a very important distinction because a lot of misconceptions about genetics comes from not understanding that we're talking about individual differences in a population. So a trait could be highly heritable, but say your height. I'm not sure if I, under, if I understood the, okay. the distinction that you're making there. Okay. Well, it's the distinction between one individual and the pop differences in the population. So... If, if, if height is 90% heritable, it could be that you're, sh if you were short, it could be that for you, it's entirely due to the environment. You had some bad illness or something when you were very young. That's why you're so short. You would have been very tall, say, if you hadn't had that illness. So that's one individual. And it, we're talking about on average in the population, over 90% of the differences between people in height are due to genetics, inherited DNA differences. But that's an average in the population. And for any one person, it could be entirely environmental. So that's an important distinction because, um, well, well, we'll get into it later as we talk about traits that are more um, provocative than height, like behavioral traits, like mental health and illness, cognitive abilities. So just to rephrase what you said to make sure that I understand you're saying 90% of the uh, of of the reason why uh, we are tall or short or the height 
is basically genetics, but ten percent of the I think is based on the uh, the environment. But it doesn't. So from one person to another, uh, it doesn't matter if it's ninety or ten percent. It can change completely. It's an average in the population. So on average, most by yes. far the biggest reason why people differ in height is genetics. So if you you know if you think about other traits, you know we're asking about schizophrenia, for example, a common you know one of the um, most um, important psychiatric disorders. Why do people differ? Why are some schizophrenic and others not? And for a century in psychology, people assumed it was nurture. It was due to the environment. More specifically, even Freud said it was really due to the way your mother treated you in the first few years of life. For a hundred years, people didn't really think about genetics, but it turns out that schizophrenia has nothing to do with what your mother did to you in the first few years of life. It's one of the most heritable, most genetically influenced psychiatric disorders. And so, we're, again, though, we're saying, why do people? Why are some people schizophrenic and others not? We're talking about differences between people. I hope that helps a little. Yes, I I understand one hundred percent what you are saying. So, uh, with that being said, uh, though, where 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 you draw the line? Why uh, where why some stuff are fully focused by DNA and why some stuff are fully focused by nature? So, mm -hmm. well, the thing we found you... out over the last say twenty thirty years is that just about everything shows genetic influence. There's some things that are somewhat less heritable, that is more due to the environment than others. But really, even in psychology, on average, 50% of the differences between people across hundreds of traits is due to genetic differences. And that's such a shocking finding because when I started graduate school in 1970, psychology was entirely environmentalistic. It assumed that everything we are, our personality, our mental health and illness, our cognitive abilities, everything was due to the environment. And now we know everything is significantly influenced by genetics. Nothing is totally influenced by genetics. So there's nothing that's deterministic. You know, it's not hardwired. It's just, it's just that genetics plays a much larger role than anyone ever thought. And in psychology, the range is only from, say, 40% for personality traits, you know, like how sociable you are, how neurotic you are, to about 60% for cognitive abilities. But on average, all psychological traits show 50% heritability. That means 50% of the differences between people are due to genetic differences. So that's been... Um, a, a huge revelation in psychology. And uh, when I started 50 years ago, it was really kind of dangerous to even talk about genetic influence. People were still recovering from Nazi Germany and eugenics. And so it was very dangerous to even talk about genetic influence. But in the last 50 years, a mountain of evidence of many different types has all converged on the conclusion that the major systematic force making us who we are as individuals is our inherited DNA differences, genetics.
why we we draw these conclusions like how what studies how 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 we we came to these uh, right. things yeah that's what behavioral genetics is about and that's what my book is about it's called um uh blueprint you know uh, how dna makes us who we are so what the conclusion of the book is that inherited dna differences are the major reason for why you are the way you are even though it's easy to think about environmental things like if you ask people why you know like in personality uh, pick a personality trait that you're high on like what activity level say or maybe you're sociable or maybe you're shy or emotional but pick one you know if people who are listening to this pick one thing that you're really kind of different from other people on and just say why are you happy that way? i'm i'm very happy you're you're happy you're positive you mean optimistic yes. good sense of well-being well yeah yeah lucky you i mean that's great but and then you ask well why are you that way and if before people hear about behavioral genetics it's just easy to think about all the environmental things maybe your parents were particularly loving and supportive towards you maybe you just had a very nice childhood and you have a very good friends so it's not crazy to think it's due to nurture but in fact it's due to genetics and you see that in a lot but the mostly the, you are saying mostly due mostly to, genetic yeah to genetic. and the thing is there's a lot of story a lot of bits here to talk about all at the same time and they're all described in my book blueprint so to begin with you asked how do we know genetics is so important and one there are two main methods the twin study and the adoption study the twin study is like a biological experiment um, most people know there are two types of twins identical twins and fraternal twins so a th- 1% of all twin births are twins and a third of those are identical twins they're called identical because they're monozygotic one zygote that is an egg and a sperm meet that's a zygote and that zygote then develops but it splits into two separate zygotes and those zygotes are genetically identical if you sequence their dna they have the same dna so they're clones basically in the other type of twin fraternal twins are like any brother and sister they're 50% similar genetically they if you sequence their dna half of their dna will be the same but half will be different and so if a trait like take a trait we don't know much about musical ability if it's heritable you'd have to predict that identical twins are very, more similar than fraternal twins because identical twins are twice as similar genetically as fraternal twins so if a trait were totally due to genetics suppose musical ability is 100% due to genetics you'd predict that identical twins are 100% similar and fraternal twins are not 0% they're 50% similar genetically and so you can estimate the extent to which genetics is important by the extent to which identical twin cor- correlations are higher than fraternal twin correlations so that's the twin method and it's been used literally in thousands of studies so that's been the workhorse in this area the other method though is more like a social experiment we know that things run in families so children and parents are similar 
say for body weight, for example, people might be, well, I'll, I'll save the punchline till the end of this. For body weight, parents and offspring correlate 0.3. Now, people probably know that a correlation goes from zero to one, right? One is a perfect correlation. Zero means there's no relationship. So parents and offspring correlate 0.3. People have known that for 100 years. But why do they correlate? And everyone assumed it was due to nurture, which is not unreasonable, right? Parents give their kids the, they give the kid the food, you know, they give them their role models for exercise and for diet and that sort of thing. But parents and offspring are 50% similar genetically. Could it be that the reason parents and offspring are similar for weight is genetics? And how do you test that? Well, the adoption method is a direct test of that because you can study kids adopted away from their birth parents they're like nature relations. They're genetic relationships. So these kids are adopted away at birth from their biological parent, and then they grow up in an adoptive family. So those kids are still 50% similar genetically to their biological parents, but they're 0% similar genetically to their adoptive parents. So it's a direct test of genetic influence. So I said, if parents and offspring the nat there's no good word for it, natural parents, normal parents who share genes and environment with their kid, they correlate 0.3. So the question is, what's the correlation between biological parents and their adopted away kids? And the answer is 0.3. You would correlate just as much with your biological hmm. parents for hmm. weight, even hmm. if you never saw them in your life. So, And then, you, then the other side of it, let me just finish the adoption design. That the other side of it is the adoptive parents. So that would mean, you know, if, if genetics accounts for parent offspring resemblance, then what about adoptive parents and their adopted kids? They correlate zero. So if you grew up with adoptive parents, you were adopted away at birth, you wouldn't correlate with your weight would not correlate with the weight of your adoptive parents at all. But it would correlate just the same with your biological parents as if they raised you. So that suggests that genetic influence accounts for family resemblance. And here's the other part of the story, and that is heritability is never one. It's on average 50%. That means 50% of weight, for example, is due to non-genetic factors, environmental factors. But the surprise here was to realize it's not nurture in the sense of family environment. Because if you grow up with your adoptive parents and adoptive siblings, you're not genetically related to them, you won't be similar at all for weight. Growing up in the same family doesn't make you similar. But all of our theories of socialization from Freud onwards assume that that's the way the environment works. It's the family environment. It's your mother particularly. You know, a lot of Freudian stuff is mother blaming, you know, for what goes wrong with you later in life. But this is saying the environment's important, but it's not the environment we always thought it was. Whatever it is, it's making two kids growing up in the same family different from one another. It's not making them similar. So for 30 years, people have been trying to find what those, they're called non-shared environmental factors are. And we really don't know. And I've come to conclude that it's basically chance, idiosyncratic, stochastic, random factors 
because there is a lot of randomness in life, you know, accidents, illnesses, things like that. But um, that's quite shocking to think that um, after 30 years, we haven't really been able to identify what these environmental factors are that account for 50% of the differences between us. So the environment's important, but it's not the environment we thought was important. Now, the way these findings come together in the title of my book, which is Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are, what it, 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 the conclusion is that DNA is the major systematic force making you who you are as an individual. The environment's important, but it's not operating in some systematic way. It's basically chance. So here's the bottom line. What I'm saying is that if you had been adopted away at birth, say there was a mistake in the maternity room and the wrong parents took you home. You grow up with the wrong parents in a, in a different family, different friends, different school, everything's different. I'm saying you'd be just the way you are now. You'd be just the same as if you, you grew up with your identical twin because you're genetically identical to yourself, right? I mean, you'd be the same person genetically. But the fact that you grew up in one family versus another family has no effect. So I know it's really shocking, isn't it? But it isn't just hypothetical. I don't know if your, your listeners have um, seen this film that won Sundance a couple of years ago. It's called Three Identical Strangers. Uh, are you familiar with that? It's, it's the story no. of uh, not identical twins, but identical triplets. So identical twins, is one zygote splits in the first few days of life. Sometimes one of those split again. So you've got three identical triplets in this case. And it's the story of, it starts with this guy, Bobby, who grew up in one of the wealthiest areas in New York, Long Island. And when he went, at the age of 19, he went to university in upstate New York. And on the first day at university, his name's Bobby. Everyone was calling him Eddie, and they pretended like they knew him. And so he thought this was some weird psychology experiment. You know, he's looking around for the hidden cameras. But then he met Eddie, and it was like looking in the mirror. And they quickly worked out that they were had the same birth date and that they were both adopted, and they had been adopted from an adoption agency in Brooklyn. So that created a lot of publicity, and it raised a third one. That's why they're called identical triplets, uh, Dave. So the, the weird thing, too, is Bobby was in a very wealthy family. Eddie was in a middle-class um, family whose uh, father was... Uh, no, he was a, a lower-class family. His father was an immigrant who had just a corner shop sort of thing. And Dave, the third one, was raised in a middle-class family whose father was a high school teacher. So it, weird. These guys are raised in as different families as you can expect. And then you see them in this film, and you almost can't tell them apart physically. That's because physical characteristics, eye color, height, weight, everything, has is very strongly genetic. But the more surprising thing is how similar they are in personality. You'll see from the film and the photos, they're very outgoing. And um, what you don't see from the photos is that they were also very depressive. They seem very happy, easygoing guys, but they actually were all depressive. They didn't know of the existence of each other till they were 19. But in adolescence, they were all treated for depression. 
And that was very unusual. They were growing up in the 50s. And in the 1950s, very, it was very rare for an adolescent to be treated for depression. And then they were similar also academically, which interests me a lot. I'm particularly interested in educational performance. And they're the type of student um, that I like, actually, but they don't like school. They're clearly very bright. They like to read. They like to argue. But they don't like school. You know, they found it kind of constraining. And so the cool thing was, after they met at college, two of them were in college together, and the other one was at another college, they all dropped out of university. And they moved to Manhattan, and they started a nightclub called Triplets that made a million dollars in the first year. So, you know, it it, it was sort of a a way in which genetics um, helps you uh, you know, the environment isn't out there happening to us. The environment works more like this. They decide they don't really like school and that they're just going to drop out of school. And what they like is wildlife and nightclubs. And they set up this bachelor pad that became famous in Manhattan. And they like the nightlife. They like meeting a lot of people. They like the stimulation of, of that sort of life. It was in a way, their environment isn't what happens to you. To a greater extent, experience is what you make of the environment. You know, you select environments and modify them and create environments that are correlated with your genetic propensities. So it's like you make your environment. It's not like the environment makes you. And that's a lot to kind of take in, but I think it's very important. Like when people are depressed or whatever, they blame it on their parents, for example. There's a you know huge tendency now to blame everything that goes wrong in your life on your parents. But what I've said is really what your parents did doesn't make a lot of difference, you know, in the normal range. Now, clearly, if you were locked in a closet or beaten or abused, that's a different story. But within the range of populations that we study, genetics is the major systematic force making you who you are as individuals. So the only reason I'm on a crusade about this is because it's part of understanding who we are. You know, if you think about who you are, people often think, well, it's what your parents did to you, you know, it's early life, but it isn't. It's really mostly genetic. So to understand yourself, it's important that you understand these genetic tendencies that you have. Not to say you can't change them, but it's part of understanding who you are. For example, you know, shyness is a very is a highly heritable personality trait. And in America, it's sort of a pathology to be shy. You know, if you've ever sat on an airplane with an American, they'll tell you your whole life story and their sex life and everything, you know? And um, they think of British as, uh, I'm an American in Britain, so I can say these things. They think of the British as, you know, really (laughs) uptight, but the British would think the Americans are just weird, you know, to just tell a stranger everything about themselves. But shyness is, to a large extent, heritable. You know, it's one of the more heritable personality traits. And so even within America, I was never very outgoing. I was kind of shy. And, you know, you think you're kind of weird because of that. But if you say, no, well, there's genetic influence on that. And as you go through life, you get less and less concerned about what other people think. And I don't like to go to cocktail parties where there's a lot of people I don't know. I'm always surprised that there are people who love that. You know, they think, wow, that's great and stimulating. I don't like it. And as I get older, I don't think I'm weird. I just think that's the way I am. And if I don't like to go to cocktail parties, I don't go to cocktail parties, you know? So 
um, I think it's important that um, we actually, the older you get, the more you become who you are. I think you become less concerned about what other people think about you, you know, and um, I think that's probably a good thing. It may be why older people are happier on average. You know, there's this U-shape function. Uh, people are happy, you know, in early adulthood or whatever, but in middle life, maybe it's kids, maybe it's just the drudgery of day-to-day -day life or whatever, but they become much less happy. But then after that, in the 60s and 70s, on average, you know, health, you know, given reasonable health, people are generally fairly happy. And I wonder to what extent that is that they're just more accepting of who they are, what their life is. And, you know, I think that's a good thing. Sorry, I've been babbling on here, but... So <laughs> No, 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 I love this. <laughs> you are saying interesting stuff. That's why I'm not interfering. So uh, if why you are, what you are saying you think is super important? Well, because um, from a scientific point of view, it's because we always assumed everything in psychology is environmental. And now we know everything systematic in psychology is genetic, genetics it's the major systematic force making us who we are. So that's a complete, that turns psychology on its head. For parents, it's important. Because if you're a parent and you think kids are a blob of clay and you're going to make them be what you want them to be, you're in for a world of hurt. It's going to be very unhappy for you. Because, say for example, I mean, 1% of the population gets diagnosed in their life as schizophrenic. You know, that's a very severe mental disorder where you lose touch with reality. You know, it's very bad news. And so I often get emails from people who say, you know, they did everything they could for their kid. And then you don't find out that they're schizophrenic until they're in their late teens or early 20s. And then what you used to be told by the Freudian types is, well, it's what the mother did to the kid in the first few years of life. I mean, how wicked is that? Because you can't change the first few years of life. But worse than that, it's wrong. It's totally wrong. There's no evidence for that. So if you think your kids became schizophrenic, it must be because of what you did, because everything's environmental. That's pretty tough to take. And that's why parents of, of kids who became psychotic, that's either schizophrenic or bipolar, depressive, they're big supporters of genetic research, you know, because they come to realize that they didn't do that to their kid, you know. And so it's important for parents to realize, not just for negative things like that, but, you know, you still hear parents who, if, if you're athletic, you want your kid to be a gold medal, you know, uh, winner in the Olympics or something. And it doesn't mean you can't do anything. You can push your kid to do a lot better than they would have. But if your kid doesn't have the body to be a marathon runner, you're not going to make them a marathon runner. You're not going to make them a goal, an elite athlete anyway. You know, you can do something. But, but how much is that something? How much you can influence the, is the real question? Uh, not much at all. So if you think about, if you think about um, athletics, if, say if your, your kid isn't, isn't, hasn't got the body to be a runner, you could still run with your kid. You could make them run better than they were running. But it's an uphill battle, and kids aren't stupid. The 
kid, I tried to make my kids learn piano. And just because they inherited my orneriness, they said, oh, you want me to play piano? Great. I'm not going to play piano. And, you know, they, they're musically oriented, mm -hmm. but they didn't want to take lessons. You know, I felt to be a civilized person, you have to be able to read music. You know, and, and that was a dumb thing to do because some kids love music and they'll learn it. Other kids hate it. But now I could make them learn to read music. And I did. But it was a great mistake because there was a lot of cost to that. They were rebelling against it the whole time. It was a bone of contention. I said, no, before you go out and play, you have to practice the piano. What was the point of that? You know, and because they weren't dumb. They looked at their friends and some of their friends were composing music. They didn't have music lessons. But nowadays, you don't need a teacher. You know, you've got Spotify and all of this online resource stuff. So kids with musical talent, you almost can't stop them from becoming good at music. Because, you know, it's not that they need the best teachers in the world. They, they'll just hang out with kids who like music. They'll start forming bands. They'll start composing music. You know, they, they'll just, their genetics will push them in the direction they want to go. So my message to parents is don't try to make your kid into something you want them to be. Give them the opportunities to find out what they like to do and what they're good at. And then if they find something, help them as best you can to do it. So mostly because me, you don't know what is their genetic uh, tendencies. Yeah, so yeah. The, the best thing to do is just allow them to explore and find their genetic tendencies right. by themselves. Well, something else we might get into though is now the DNA revolution allows us to predict what kids are good at. So there's a bunch of companies okay. now called Map My Gene is one, and they do talent testing for children. Now, it's, they're not great predictors, but you can predict athletic ability, you know, to some extent with genetics, but you don't even need the genetics. If you see these music, these athletically gifted people, they didn't inherit an ability to play tennis. For example, we're missing Wimbledon now as we record the semifinals of Wimbledon. I can tell you're not a tennis buff but <laughs> do you know Wimbledon is the tennis match in England yes uh, I know yeah. I know I know but I, I'm not a very tennis fan yeah well they're doing the semifinals right at this minute it's very interesting this year but you know if you pick the the famous athletes they weren't like good at they weren't inheriting uh, uh ability for tennis it involves eye-hand coordination most athletes even talk to these tennis players they They liked basketball. They played football. They were good at a lot of sports. They had a lot of things going for them. The speed, the reaction time, the hand-eye coordination. You know, the, there's things you need to be a good athlete. And we can predict some of that with genetics. And elite athletes are doing this now. We have uh, the baseball teams, football teams. Um, they, they all want that little bit of edge. Even if you could predict a little bit It can make a big difference in an elite athlete. But with, with kids, you could predict this kid's going to be a klutz. Like if this, you could predict their height and weight very well as an adult. And if you thought your kid was going to be a basketball player, and I tell you, your kid is going to be below average in height and fat, um, it's not a very good bet. Now, even in that case, though, you could say, I want my kid to be a basketball player. You can give them coaches. And in childhood or whatever, they could get to be pretty good 
But are they going to play basketball? No, because, you know, they know they're no good at it. So with how much accuracy we can predict the weight uh, and um, the height? You can predict about 20. So it's about 60% heritable. The differences between people, people are often surprised by that. 60% heritable, body mass index, weight. That means of the differences you see in your friends, 60% of those differences are due to genetics, which is surprising because a lot of people think, you know, well, it's just a matter of uh, not eating like a pig and exercising and all of that. But it isn't. I mean, you know, people like me who have a genetic tendency to put on weight, it's it's really a battle, you know, to, to not eat so much, to, to watch your diet. Skinny people like you probably don't have, you know, they often think, well, you know, stop being such a, a pig, you know, and just in England, they say, pull your socks up, you know, get your act together. But it yes. isn't like that. You know, there really stop is a, being gen- a pussy. Yeah. A genetic. <laughs> uh, it's, but it, it's a, the genetics is really important here. And we can explain it's 60% heritable. We can explain 20% of the differences between people with DNA. And the thing about that is we can predict that at the, at birth because your DNA does not change through life, which is kind of amazing. You know, that one cell with which we begin life, half the DNA is from your mother, half from your father. That unique set of DNA is the same DNA in all of the trillions of cells in your body. And it doesn't change throughout life. So um, can you predict how much money people will make well, in their life? Um, income actually is not as heritable as most things, but it's still 40% heritable. And you know why that is partly it involves intelligence. You know, it involves things that, you know, you don't inherit income, obviously. Well, you do actually. <laughs> a lot of people inherit. That's the reason it's not so heritable. I think to some extent, you know, income is, is a matter of what you inherit from your parents one way or another, like they give you better opportunities for schooling and that sort of thing. But right now, um, we can predict about 10, probably a little less than 10% of the variance in ultimate income people will make as an adult. Do you know what I mean? You know, like when you reach your sort of peak of occupational status or whatever. So increasingly, we are able to predict with DNA alone how people are doing, but it's always probabilistic. And it's, you know, it's, we can never make a perfect prediction because all these traits are, are less than 100% heritable. Now height, which is 90% heritable, we can predict um, getting on almost 40, 50% of the variance. So we could predict with pretty good accuracy how tall kids are gonna be. And you might say, well, sure, look at the parents. If the parents are tall, the kids are tall. But actually, I mean, that's true on average. But you'll have tall parents who have short kids, and you'll have most of the tallest kids come from parents of average height. And the reason for that is there are relatively few very tall parents. That's this normal bell-shaped curve, the normal distribution it's called. And many more of the kids in the next generation will come from parents in the middle because 90% of all the kids who are born have parents who are more in the middle. And yet they're very different. You know, 
I'm sure most of your listeners probably have examples where in a family, one sibling is tall and another sibling is short. Kids differ in height within a family. Now, the environment has trouble explaining that. How do you explain it environmentally? Did the parents feed one kid better than the other? Unlikely. But genetics predicts that kids in a family are different from one another. And that's another important message for parents. You know, people who go to university find it very hard when one of their kids say they don't like school and, you know, they don't want to go to university. That's really hard for university parents to accept. But you got to recognize that kids are different. And rather than pushing them to do what you want them to do, it's far better to figure out what they like to do and help them do it. You know, it, mostly I tell parents, just relax more. You don't make as much of a difference as you think you do. And what you should do is realize this is the longest relationship in your life. Why spoil it? by trying to force them into being something you want them to be. I think the enjoyment from parenting comes from watching your kids become who they are rather than trying to make them into what you want them to be because that isn't going to work very well. So you are basically saying uh, if you want to influence your kids, the most important decision in your life is to who you marry. Well, the most important thing in your life is who your parents are, but you can't do much about that. Who your parents yes. are. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but you're right. Um, picking your spouse is, it's sort of like eugenics though, isn't it? You're sort of changing the genes to be the way you want them to be. But you know, we do that naturally. Do you know the, it's called assortative mating. I don't know um, if in your in your language there's a, a in England we say in English we say birds of a feather flock together. Similar people are attracted to people who are like them. Birds of a feather flock together. The other one though, the other adage is opposites attract. You know, people think, well, no, you like to hang out with people who are different from you because they're stimulating, but it isn't the case. Assortative mating is always positive. We do tend to find people who are similar to us in personality, in height. You probably see that in height, you know, that tall guys tend to marry tall women. On average, it isn't very strong. The strongest assortative mating is for intelligence. So people, you know, sometimes say, oh, how do you, how can you measure intelligence? Well, you can measure intelligence in five minutes in a singles bar because you talk to the What? person and you get a sense very quickly about their verbal ability, vocabulary, sort of their intelligence. I mean, they, they talk intelligently, you know, you sort of know what that is. And if you're intelligent, you will find, you will very quickly see that someone's intelligent. Now, that doesn't mean in a one-night stand, you know, that you care very much about that. But when you start, you know, waking up in the morning with the person and you have to talk to them all day long, it becomes very important um, that you're kind of matched in terms of intellectual, because it's not just ability, it, it also influences what you like to do. Do you know? So assortative mating is an important factor. And 
in the sixties, when I was in college, um, there, uh, there was a sense of, well, I, I knew many women who didn't, this is the days of women's lib, you know, in the sixties and seventies. And I knew several women in Boulder, Colorado, which was a pretty wild place where I went to graduate school. And a lot of women were saying they wanted to have kids, but they didn't want a man. You know, they just wanted some sperm. And I knew, I knew three women who just went out to a singles bar, picked up some guy for the night and had a kid, didn't tell, didn't tell the father about it. Because at that time, people thought it's all tender, loving care. You just are nice to your kid and loving to your kid and everything will be fine. They really thought that. You know, and I hope that sounds preposterous to people hearing this, but people really did believe it at the time. And, you know, it still happens now. Um, a lot of parents who put off having kids till later in life and spend a lot of their youth not getting pregnant and having abortions, when then when they want to have a kid, they can't have a kid and they adopt. And I still know parents who think, well, it doesn't matter. You know, you just get any old kid and it's going to be fine. And that's fine if you don't care. If they go to university, you don't care, you know, what they're like. But I have one adopted child and one of my own children. And there's a, you really see it. Oh, wow. Well, I, I inherited wow. a kid from a woman I was with who died. So, I, you know, it wasn't like um, regular adoption. But, you know, say, say if you're university educated, and you adopt a kid, the average IQ in the population is 100. So if you're lucky, you'll get a kid with an average IQ of 100. The average IQ of kids who go to university is 115. The average IQ of people who graduate from university is 125. And, you know, so the kid with the average IQ of 100 is unlikely to go to university. And if they did, if you push them to do it, because, you know, you're an educated parent, you want your parent to go to university, your kid to go to university, the kid would, you know, it'd be a tough go for the kid. And that can almost be worse because then they, they fail at university. Instead, you know, they might have said, well, I want to do some vocational electronics. How about programming? I think we need a lot more um, people who are trained for real op op occupations where there's a job at the end of it, like they do in Europe, you know, especially Switzerland and Germany, where that's a really important track after uh, high school, after compulsory school. You know, you can go into apprenticeship training where you get paid to go to university or, you know, go to for training and say programming. And then you have a job at the end of it. It kills me that these kids in university now, many of them want to do psychology, film studies. There's no job at the end of it. And they're flipping hamburgers at McDonald's, you know? So I, I really don't think, um, well, parents really need to realize that kids are different. And even their genetically related kids will be different from one another. And it's sort of important to me because I grew up in a family, I had one sister. And I, always, I learned to read early. I loved to read. I went to school. I did well at school. And my sister didn't do any of those things. She was late to learn to read. She didn't never liked reading. And she didn't like going to school. She wasn't good at it. And if you think everything's environmental, then you think, well, I deserve a lot of credit because I did well at school. 
And what's wrong with her? Is she lazy or whatever? But it's not, you know, we're just different genetically. And she's very good at some things. She ended up being head of a blood technicians, you know, a lab where they do blood testing in hospitals. Because she's very good at that, very responsible, attention to detail, you know, things that I wouldn't be. I mean, I, I couldn't stand doing those sort of routine life-determining job. If you make a mistake there, someone can die, you know? So, but she thrives on it. So she found her niche in life, and I found mine. But um, to think that it's environmental is a big mistake, I believe. So I think it's very important for parents to get this message that genetics is much more important than they probably thought. And environmentally, they don't have as much control as they think they do. I mean, they can make the kid's life not pretty only miserable. parents, not only parents though. Like this is a very freeing idea when you are just for everyone. It's like you are more relaxed <laughs> when you understand that actually. So basically, you are saying with all the stuff that you said that basically is mostly genetic stuff, and even if it's. Uh, if we can control behavior or something, it's based on lack of the environment or something. It's not, uh, it's not yeah, the too much environment's stuff that mostly you can do about stuff. Yeah, the environment's chance, so you don't have control over chance. Now, what people say is, well, does yes. that mean I, I can't do anything as a parent? Well, you can. You could make your kid's life pretty miserable. You could, like in adolescence, you could force them to have piano lessons when they don't want to have piano lessons. You can make their <laughs> life pretty miserable. But if you're thinking you're going to make a difference in the long run, you're going to affect how um, their mental health and illness, how well they do at school, you won't make nearly as much difference as you think. So I think here's a good analogy. If, you, if, you, if you're thinking of getting married or someone and you want to find a spouse, if you pick someone and said, well, um, they're not bad. I could make something good of them. You know, I'll have them do this and I'll have them do that. And I'll make them be the person I want them to be. You know, that's a disaster. You do things for people you love because you love them. You want life to be nice for them. So I don't do stuff for my wife because I'm trying to make her be something I want her to be. You know, if she, she doesn't, she doesn't like, I like blues. She doesn't like blues. She likes classical music. I don't force her to go to blues things hoping I'll get her interested in blues. You know, we kind of compromise. I go to classical stuff sometimes, she goes to stuff. So you do stuff for people you love because you love them and you want life to be nice for them. You don't do it for them because you're trying to make them into something you want them to be. Now, that sounds crazy with a spouse, but that's what people do with their kids. They think they're doing things for their kids because they want them to be the person they, you know, they think they ought to be. Instead, it ought to be like a spouse. You do stuff for them because you want life to be nice for them. You want them to be happy. And that doesn't mean letting them do anything they want to do. I mean, if they're getting into drugs or whatever, you say, this is not going to be good for you. You know, in, in my opinion, you're, you're, you know, you're really going to, you're seriously dangering your life. And if you see that they like certain things, you help them do it. Not because you're trying to make them into something. You just want them to be happy. So it's an important distinction, but I think parents ought to enjoy being parents because they're not going to make much of a difference anyway. Robert, I think you are a bit of a bad person because you destroyed the 
uh, the motivational industry of teaching everyone, uh, making everyone think that they can do everything themselves and that they can be a billionaire themselves. Exactly right. As they say in America, in America they say anyone can be president. And with Trump, that almost appears to be true, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) No, but you know, it's kind of wicked to say. I know what you're saying is it sounds bad to say. I'm I'm basically saying you can't be anything you want to be. You can try to be better at something than you are, but if you think you're going to be an Olympic marathon runner or sprinter or, you know, play at Wimbledon and tennis, you know, it's a, it's a dumb thing to think, you know, better to say, no, look, I'm good at these things. I like to do these things. So I'll try to do those things. So it's, it's bad to say any, you can be anything you want to be, because then if you're not what you want to be, like a billionaire, then it's your fault, your fault. Yep. And in the past, it would have been your parents. And then you are miserable. And then, yeah. and then you are miserable because you think, oh, um, the the other people did something right and I did something wrong, and like you start, so yes, yeah, so yeah, it's it's exactly it's right. kind of revolutionizing the 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 world. This idea is like the world is not living with this idea in mind. Uh, and it's like yeah. all these motivation, all, all the successful, most of the successful people, they say, yes, you can do it and all this stuff, but they, they forget that they are there because of their genetic uh, behavior and not because they did something right and they were uh, lucky. <laughs> yeah. Well, it could be, you know, that they, they worked very hard. Elon Musk, you know, is a maniac for working. I mean, it wasn't just luck that made him get where he was. But he's obviously very smart, very motivated, and and still he. I think his life is. I I don't you. You said that is like basically what you're saying is mostly luck. So, <laughs> being no, that it's genetics and the, the environmental side of it is luck. Like with Tesla, he got within a few weeks of total bankruptcy. You know, he was sleeping on the factory floor. Uh, you know, it wasn't like handed to him on a gold platter, but he has that drive and competitiveness and intelligence to want to be where he is. Now, I wouldn't change places with him in a million years. I mean, you know, I don't want to be the world's richest person. I want to be happy. I want to feel like I live a rewarding <laughs> life. Do you know? But you got to find Clever out. What, Robert. No, well, think about what you like <laughs> in life and what you're good at. And, you know, um, and I'm sure Elon Musk, you know, is probably happy in his own way, in his own autistic sort of way, you know. <laughs> but I, I think what your mission is kind of now it becomes increasingly more important if you are saying is right to really be self-aware, like Socrates said, and reverse engineer what we like and make some and not be forced by the society that we need to do something. Yes. Yeah, to be happier in yourself. That's why I think a lot of this mindfulness stuff is very good for people to think about. You know, we often don't think about, um, we don't use our intelligence to think about ourselves as much as we ought to, you know? And But that's that's not my expertise, but 
Um, I do think part of understanding ourselves is to realize how important genetics is. Not to say you can't change it. You know, like I say, you can predict obesity pretty well. My highest DNA risk score is for obesity. That is, you know, I have, I'm at the 95th percentile on the DNA score for obesity. And I'm, uh, it's been a lifelong sort of battle. You know, I, I, it's easy for me to put on weight. It's hard for me to lose it. You know, the old story. But people say, well, okay, then I'm just going to, you can't tell people it's genetic because then they're just going to throw up their hands and say, I can't do anything about it. But actually, I find it very motivating. And many people do. You realize it is genetic. It's biological. And I'm in a battle here. Uh, you know, battle of the bulge. It's just a lot easier for me to put on weight. It's a lot harder to lose it. So I've got to fight harder if I want to lose weight, you know. So knowing that it's genetic actually helps me because I mean, this isn't just like me being a lazy slob. It's just biologically. I have good genes because back 10,000 years ago when we didn't know when we were going to get the next meal, the genes I have that put on weight, fat, were good. Because fat is how you store energy. And when you don't know when you're going to get your next meal, it's very good to have these genes that have you put on fat. But in a fast food world, you know, we've got our stone age, stone age brain in a fast food nation, you know, bombarded by food cues. So now those good genes become bad genes. So anyway, I find it very motivating and I don't at all find it, it, it doesn't at all make me feel like, well, okay, nothing I can do about it. I'm going to be a genetic fatty and that's it. So I think that's generally true. Like with alcoholism, if, if we could predict that you have a genetic tendency to be alcoholic, now it doesn't mean you're going to be alcoholic. It just means other things being equal, you have more of a risk for alcoholism. But if, if you knew that, there are low-tech solutions. Like, if you don't drink a lot of alcohol for a long time, you're not going to become alcoholic. People have this misconception if, if, if the alcoholism has a genetic component. One sip of alcohol, and you're going to be hooked on alcohol. You know, it's not like that. So if you're worried about it, you just do what we're all supposed to do. Take holidays from booze. Um, just monitor your drinking, you know? Because if you... You know, if you had a kid who had a genetic risk for this in adolescence, you know, where they all go out and get bombed a lot, you say, well, you are more at risk than your friends. So just pay more attention to it. Don't just slip into it where you become dependent on it. And, you know, because it is invidious. It doesn't happen one day. You don't wake up alcoholic. You know, this is over many years of more and more drinking, and then you become dependent on it. You don't feel like you can go to a party or socialize unless you're hammered. So, so anyway, I think this genetic message is positive. Uh, That's how you started, that this is kind of a liberating message, not just for parents, but also for ourselves. And yes, exactly and right. when you know the data, you can... You uh, you can reverse engineer and do what you did with a lot more relaxation, like uh, you describe with the weight. You have weight tendencies, so it's it's very beautiful to see. But how do I understand and how people can understand 
what's their genetic tendencies? Is there is tests to do? Is like just paying attention to your you self awareness well, or something? That's How what we're trying understand to. This? That's what we're trying to do now with the DNA revolution is to actually find the genes that predict this genetic influence. So, uh, all of medicine is doing this now. It's the big thing in medicine. It's called preventive medicine. So the way medicine and psychiatry worked until recently is you wait until someone has a disease, like you have a heart attack. Medicine is oriented towards fixing that once it happens. But, you know, once you have a bad heart attack, your life is pretty shit afterwards in a way. You know, there's a decreased quality of life. I mean, it might have killed you for one thing, but even if it doesn't, there's a lot to pay. So instead, if you could predict who's going to have a heart attack, you could prevent it. And you can prevent it with low-tech solutions. And so the best predictor in town is DNA. So you can predict about, uh, I think it's something like 12% of the liability towards heart attacks. So what that means is you could, you could say, if you do men particularly, because men are particularly at risk for these early onset heart attacks, middle, you know, in adulthood, these massive sort of heart attacks that are especially dangerous. You, I think it's something like the, the top 5% are at a tenfold greater risk. So if you get the DNA from someone, which you, I'm sure people are familiar with it, like 23andMe, you just, get, you just um, uh, take a swab in the inside of your mouth. Well, during COVID testing, that's a DNA test. So you get some DNA, and then we genotype your DNA, and I can tell you, are you in that top 5% of risk? Because if you are, you're probably perfectly healthy as a young man. But I'd say you're actually at a tenfold greater risk of having one of these severe heart attacks than other people. So then we can prevent it. Rather than waiting till you have a heart attack, we can try to prevent that heart attack from happening. Because economically, socially, and personally, that's so much better than trying to deal with problems after they've occurred. And so what do you do about it if you have a high risk for heart attacks? It's the same stuff we're all supposed to do. Lose weight, eat better, exercise more, monitor your blood pressure. Low tech doesn't cost a thing, really. But if you knew you were at that tenfold greater risk for having a heart attack, you might pay attention whereas the rest of us just ignore this sort of advice, you know, this public health sort of advice. But you can go beyond that now. There are more expensive treatments that can predict, like whole body scans. You can actually predict, you can show that your arteries are starting to fuzz up, you know, and you can do something about it before they actually occlude, before they fuzz up so much that you have a heart attack. So I think it's, it's just so exciting because it's going to change medicine and it's going to change everything to know about the DNA. And rather than talking about it abstractly, like weight is 60% heritable, we can say, no, your risk score, if you were like me, is at the 95th percentile for obesity. So I can predict that you are definitely going to be heavier than other people. You're going to find it harder to stay fit and thin than other people. 
And then what do you do with that? Well, there's things you can do. And I don't know if you've been following the excitement about semaglutide. You know, it's the thing all the Hollywood A-listers are using now. Do you, do you know about this at all? It's a, it's an injection once yeah. a week of a, of a, a glutide. It, ha, it has, it was first set up for insulin. You know, if you have an, in, if you're diabetic, you need to have, get insulin shots to control your blood sugar levels. If they get too low, you go into uh, a seizure. So here you can, um, semiglutide breaks one of those chains. So it was used initially for diabetics, but then it was found that it made people lose weight. And, you know, I know there's all, all these fads about weight reduction, but this is one that's been going on for two years and it works. It works so well, you can't even buy the stuff now because there's a global shortage, an international shortage, because it's in such demand. Because it really works. So I started it about five months ago. And I've lost, um, being American, I still think in pound, but I've lost uh, uh, 10 kilo, 10 kilos in since Which January. about 20 pounds. Well. Exactly right. And, and the neat thing about it is it, it's not, um, it just makes you like a normal person in the sense that if there's food on the table before, like you go to a restaurant, you're with friends, people say, do you want some more? No, I'm full. But then as the food sits there, I start eating the other person's chips and, oh, are you going to finish that meat, you know? And I just keep eating even after I really am full. But, I, you know, normal people would feel like, no, when I'm full, if you make me eat more, I'm going to get sick. Well, that's what the semiglutide does to you. It just makes you feel normal. You, you say, no, I really am full. I don't want any more food. And for the first time in as long as I can remember, I'll actually leave food on my plate, you know, like at a restaurant, even though it's very good food. I don't eat every last scrap now. It's really quite amazing. And I don't crave food the same way I used to. And the amazing thing is it has very few side effects. You know, you'd think something that does something like that might affect you in a lot of other ways, but it doesn't affect your your zest for life. It doesn't make, you know, you could give people drugs that would just be downers. They would just make them, you know, depressed and not wanting anything. It's not at all like that, though. It's very specific to food. Um, so that that to me is, in a way, kind of evidence for the biological aspect of it. Because this has nothing to do with, you could probably give it to somebody if they didn't know it, and they would lose weight. It, it really, you know, you can do more if you're motivated. And, you know, you, you do the weight control sort of methods, eat smaller amounts of food and eat slowly, you know, those sorts of tricks definitely help. But semaglutide would have you lose weight even if you didn't know you were taking it. So, so, uh, so anyway, uh, that's, that's rather cool from my point of view, because that's the one thing I have the, it's, it's my greatest <laughs> um, health problem, I'd say. <laughs> so uh, I think is when you were describing all this stuff, I was like, oh, wow. So it's a lot more optimistic uh, the the pharma industry and like the this preventing stuff because now there is if you prevent uh, the disease with all this stuff that you are measuring we are talking about 
huge change in the in everything in life like yeah. for example now the pharma is some big uh, thing but if we change our focus to understand because prevention means a lot of things a lot of times like but when we actually know what we need to prevent and like it becomes uh, more uh, and we can detect it it, it's it will change the whole it will expand li- lifespan for sure that just yeah. uh, uh, that uh, one one good example of that though is in terms of heart attacks it's said that if you could prevent one severe heart attack from occurring just one you save on the order of 800,000 euros because you know if you go to the hospital and you have a severe heart attack you're in intensive care for a while and um, treatments and drug. Instead, if you could prevent one from happening, you're talking about nearly a million euros. So imagine what it would wow. do for the health service. Wow. If you could do that. And so that's why medicine has completely gone over to this idea of preventive medicine. And I think in psychology, in psychiatry, that's the way we ought to go too. Because once someone becomes alcoholic, it's you can treat it. You can have people not be on alcohol, and AA works fairly well. But in a said, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. You're you know you're a recovered alcoholic, but you're still an alcoholic. That is, you could easily go off the wagon again if you started drinking. The same thing's true with a lot of things, even schizophrenia. Once you've had a major schizophrenic episode, it's very hard to lead a normal life after that. You can, you know, with the, the drugs don't work all that well. But with any of these things, if we could work to prevent these things, rather than putting all of our energy into finding the drugs to help people after they've had this problem, like alcoholism or heart attack, try to prevent it, not just with drugs, though, but with um, in psychiatry, I think with prevention. So like depression is probably the biggest problem in society now. And I do believe that um, I don't know if you know cognitive behavior therapy, you know, it's the main treatment for depression these days, which is really just healthy thinking. It's sort of like mindfulness in a way, you know, you, you just, you don't ruminate on bad things. You think about what makes you depressed. Then you try to avoid that. You try to do positive things instead of treating people who are depressed. Why not give people that training before they're depressed? Why not give everybody this sense of healthy living and cognitive behavior therapy and mindfulness? You know, it's, it, um, it just seems to make such good sense because the neat thing about those things, they're not going to hurt you. They're good for you. It'd be good for everyone to learn about mindfulness. Yes, and, but, but why not to just detect it that you have this behavior and then you get an education and you prevent it from happening in the future. That well, seems because, because very that... often, by the time you get a severe depressive episode, and we're not just talking about feeling blue here, the psychotic depression, major depressive disorder, you're hospitalized for it. You, you don't eat, you don't sleep, you can't work. You, know, you don't have a life anymore. This isn't just feeling a little unhappy. I mean, you say you're a positive, optimistic, happy person, so it's probably hard to understand how I mean, we're talking about very severe depression here. And once that happens, your life starts to fall apart. 
and you can't put your life back is, together again. It, so, so, so sorry for interrupting. Sorry for interrupting. But uh, I um yes, I'm very happy. And a lot of times when other people are, are saying that they are not happy, I'm like, ah, oh, like we said before, yes, you, you pussy, you need to yeah. just like, be happy. But now with our conversation, uh, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll change behavior. <laughs> yeah, well, it is important. So it, it, you said it was liberating for us and as parents, but it's also hu humanistic in a way. And, you know, as just as you're saying, it makes us be more understanding of other people, to to recognize that people are different genetically and to respect those differences to a greater extent. To say, life might, you know, might look at your friend who's depressed and you say, you pussy, your life is good. What's wrong with your life? Well, that's you. You know, <laughs> you would say, I wouldn't be unhappy in that situation, but it isn't the situation. It's him. You know, it's that person. And they, they can be genetically more predisposed to uh, experiencing life badly. And part of that, I think, is things like mindfulness. You know, it's, it's how you interpret things. The same thing can happen for two people, and they can respond very differently. You know, someone can, you can be embarrassed, you can like screw up or something like that. And one person might not notice it, like, happy people like you and me, optimistic people, you don't even notice it. But for the other person, it's devastating. You know, for days, they won't sleep. They'll think about, I can't believe that guy did that to me, you know? And so they ruminate about it. And they just dig themselves into a hole. And, you know, we might say, well, come on, get out of it. You know, don't be a pussy. But it's just easier for us to say, and if you've ever experienced that depth of depression, you know, it, it's, boy, it's real. It isn't something just to say, come on, pull your socks up, don't be a pussy. In fact, that, of course, makes it a lot worse because, you know, they're saying, well, you think it's just because I'm a pussy. And you make them believe that uh, with this behavior, you make them believe that, oh, maybe they are just better, or maybe I can work on this. And then you, uh, and, and it's like, you think you can do a hundred, but you're actually, your capability is 20. And then you are miserable because your expectations are, uh, are yeah. off. And I do think we can change our lives. You can figure out, well, what makes you unhappy? I mean, you know, you might... You think if you were depressive, you might want to hang out with people like you who are optimistic, but it doesn't work that way. You know, I mean, if you're depressive, you tell. So you don't think we can change? You 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 think we can change our lives because uh, with what you are saying, it seems that not to a great degree. <laughs> well, parents don't make much of a difference on their kids. That's one thing. But in your life, you know, like with my obesity, I have a strong genetic tendency to be uh, heavy, you know, to put on weight. But it doesn't mean I can't do anything about it. It just means in, on the pop, in the population as a whole, genetics is very important. But I'm one person, and I can make a difference. It's going to be harder for me than it would be for you. But... I can make a difference, and I am making a difference. I'm cheating now by using semaglutide. That makes it a lot easier. And see, in the end, suppose everyone took semaglutide. Everyone in the population would be thinner. But some of us, 
would probably still be heavier than others. You know, we because I probably won't lose weight. I mean, someone who's thin like you, it might even be dangerous to use semi-glutate because you don't want to be too thin, you know? So I think even if everybody had semi-glutide, there's probably still genetic differences between us. But it, it's, a, it, it's an empirical question, you know, because what we're doing is we're describing differences that exist in a particular population at a particular time. And if you change that population, like with semi-glutide, or um, you say, well, uh, 10 generations ago, it was very different because we didn't have the access to fat foods the way we do now. There was no junk food back then, you know? So when the environment changes, then heritability can change. It's not, you know, a constant like the speed of light. So uh, I want to understand one um Something uh, in, that you are explaining, I will try to give you an example to tell me if I understand. So basically you are saying that uh, if I'm, I'm born in Cyprus, I am from Cyprus. So if I was born in the United States with the same DNA, I was going to have a completely different life, but not because... But if I was uh, going to be both in the United States, I'm more likely to have the same life. And this is what you mean by the surrounding and the environment, like the general surrounding yep. and the language and the, the culture yeah. and all this stuff. Yeah, this is what if that you were mean, the case, right? Yeah, if that were the case, then you would start telling everybody about your life when you're on an airplane. <laughs> if you grew up in America. You know, what I'm saying is that, that those cultural influences do have an effect on people, you know? But we're talking about individual differences within a population. And certainly within America, there are people who are very shy, as well as people who are super, you know, outgoing of the sort I described. Yeah, so that's a good point. I, um, there are these identical twins reared apart where I, I just heard about a pair recently where one, uh, a pair of identical twins were adopted in China and well, there's a famous pair. The most famous pair are called the Jim Twins, where one twin grew up as a Hitler youth in Germany, and the other twin grew up in uh, in Israel on a kibbutz. I mean, how about that, you know? That's funny. And they met in middle-aged, and you know they hadn't known about each other's existence, but this Minnesota study brought them together in Minnesota for a week, and it was just like this film, Three Identical Strangers, where these kids, they didn't, they were strangers to one another, but it was like they met themselves. You know, they're close friends. They're, they know each other, you know, from the first meeting. It's really quite striking to see how these identical twins reared apart, come together, even if they were reared in such different environments, um, like you're describing. But you, you almost can't get more different than being raised a Hitler youth versus being raised on a kibbutz in Israel. And yet they were very similar, you know, very similar to an eerie degree. I mean, like their hobby that they liked was carpentry, but it wasn't just carpentry. Maybe that's chance. They liked to build benches, uh, circular benches around trees. I mean, what on earth is that? Do you know what I mean? That their interests were so specific, both of them. <laughs> 
And I think that's that's <gasps> something we we don't often get to because um, they're identical genetically. That wouldn't show up in families, you know, because you're only fifty percent similar. But if you have exactly the same genes, you can sometimes have very specific genetic differences. You know, like how many people in the world build circular benches around trees, you know, wooden benches around trees. So these studies of identical twins reared apart are really quite amazing. And it makes your point, though, that if you grew up in a different culture, um, you, the culture would have an effect on you. You know, that, that the world you're swimming in, basically. But you'd still, the individual differences would still be strongly genetic. Yeah, and especially like if you go to China or India or you go in Africa, there the environment is so much different. Maybe you don't have access to internet in the world's poorest country. Yeah. And it's like, it's, yeah. uh, you know, it's very interesting, the dif difference that that will make in life but you are saying it will make certain difference but when it comes to individualness like if you are a bit happier tendencies if you like uh, if you are introvert or out or outgoing Extrovert. so this will be similar in both of the cultures mm -hmm. exactly right so uh, with all this debate, I, all, all this time, not debate, like you, you teach me stuff, all this time I have this question in mind. What about free will? <laughs> well, uh, that is um, Sam Harris, who, you know, I know I, he did an interview with me. Um, uh, he has this nice podcast called uh, Making Sense. Making and he sense. talks a lot about free will, and um, he he would say there's no such thing as free will. He would say everything's deterministic, and it's partly semantic, you know, how how you define these things. I mean, everything you do is based on your biology. You can't do anything if it if it isn't biology, right? I mean, you think because you've got a brain. Well, yeah, at that level, okay. I mean, you know what I'm saying that you can depending on how you define it, you can say, well, sure, your behavior comes from your biology in the sense that it takes a body and it takes a brain and all of that. But at the specific level of, a, of an act, you know, like, do you now, um, I don't know, rub your chin like you're doing, do you know, you could say, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> That's, you know, you say, so I can make that decision. <laughs> I can make that decision. But, um, he would say no. I mean, and it seems kind of weird. It, I, I have trouble understanding it, really. But he would say, if you could rewind that, if you could capture every bit of it, which you can't do, right? I mean, everything, every cell in your body, everything in the environment, it would work. It would come out the same, he would say. So in that sense, there isn't any free will. What you think is free will isn't free will. And I, I, I really don't get it. And, you know, and I'm not a philosopher. I'm kind of anti-philosophical. I'm a scientist, you know, and part of that is saying you, you try to find things that are tractable, problems you can solve. And there's lots of problems in the world, like, is there a God or whatever? These aren't sort of scientific questions. You can't really test that empirically. 
So as a scientist, I want to say, I can't answer all the questions. I don't know if there's free will or whatever, but give me a question I can test, I can solve, you know, not hypothetically, like if you could rewind the last few minutes and play them over again, you know, okay. I think philosophers get, they're actually interested in problems that are not tractable, that are not empirically solvable. Because if you can solve it empirically, then there's no philosophical issue, right? It, there it is. Those are the data. You know, like the multiverse. How are we ever going to solve that empirically? You know, because that's where this stuff comes in, free will. They would say there's another universe somewhere where someone exactly like you is having exactly this conversation with someone like me. Well, you know, maybe, but it doesn't interest me because that is, I don't, see that that's any ever going to be in an empirical sort of problem. But I mean, to each their own. Some people love to, to talk about those philosophical issues. I like to do science. I like to figure out what's a tractable problem. And I don't think the issue of um, is there free will is tractable. I would say there's less total free will than people think in the sense that if you just think, you know, if you don't think genetics is partly determining what you do, the influencing what you do, it's not hardwired or deterministic. But if you don't think genetics is giving you these little pushes, then I think you're wrong. So to that extent, there's less free will than people think they have. You know, um, you can take the most hyperactive kid and put a gun to their head and said, don't move or I'll shoot you. Well, they're not going to move. You know, that doesn't, that isn't free will, right? That kid will still be hyperactive in the real world, you know, in the rest of the world. So I think there's less free will in that kind of global sense than people think when they don't accept the extent to which genetics is influencing what they do, not determining, but just influencing what they do. So that's kind of a cop out, but um, I don't have a good answer to your question about no, what is. No, reality. no. It's very interesting because it's exactly what you described that, that raised my question. Because what you are presenting is that we have less free will than we ha think we that's have. That's true. So that's why yeah. I was, I, I had uh, yeah. in mind all the time this question. So you yeah. are say, you're basically saying that we, we have tendencies to become fatter. It doesn't mean if we can't change it is by so much more effort. So it's like... <laughs> but there's still free will, right? So even though weight is heritable, highly heritable and I have a strong genetic propensity, it doesn't mean I can't do anything about it. There is free will to the sense I can work really hard and not have any junk food in the house, for example. There are things I can do. So in that sense, there is free will, but it's just more limited than people think if they don't realize the extent to which genetics influences us. It's like whispers, you know, it's not like we're puppets on a string and the genetics is making us do something. And in fact, you know, the genetics can make you, you know, like um, as you get older, you start to notice uh, things in you that are like your parents. So one bad example for me, and they're often things you don't like. So one thing for me is my father was very quick tempered, you know, he was like the ultimate road rage sort of guy. And, he, you know, he'd go from zero to 100 anger very fast. 
And, you know, it's kind of scary as a kid to see your father just suddenly lose it and get very angry. And so I said, well, I'm never going to be like that. And then as I get older, I realize I have a tendency that way, you know, for sure. And so what do I do about it then? I just say, right, okay, I, you know, I'm sort of mindful about it. I just say, oops, I'm starting to feel this anger now. And I don't have to be angry. You don't have to be angry if you can say, ah, that asshole just cut me off. You know, I'm going to show him. You know, you say, no, wait a minute now. What's the point of that? The guy's going to be an asshole. It's genetic, probably. So what good is it going to be for me to get angry? Because if you're angry, and it's true of my father, too, you, you, it's not like it just passes in 30 seconds. If I get angry, I'm going to be angry for a while. And what, what good is that to me? You know, it doesn't do any good. So isn't it better to say, wait a minute now. I, it's just a labeling. I don't have to be angry. So I can recognize my genetic propensity, and it actually helps me in my life because I know I have that propensity. Yes. Uh, it makes you more understanding of others, like you said before. When someone did something wrong to you or they shouted to you, you're like, okay, maybe they have some tendencies to be like that. And you're not too judgmental and not too angry with them. So it's, 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 it's really beautiful to see that. Well, good. Yep. Well, I, I hope it so, helps people to think about uh, genetics. I, I have uh, one question because during the whole time that we we're talking, I noticed that you have some innovative thoughts about uh, schooling and how do we teach people and all this stuff. And I am curious to hear your thoughts on school and how school should be or education in a way. Yeah. Well, that's a big topic. It's probably the one that I'm most interested in. And it's sort of the same sort of stuff. We need to recognize that children are different in terms of how they learn. And we need to respect those differences to a greater extent. So one thing I would say is there's no necessary implications for policy. So if you recognize genetics is important, you can have a right wing point of view philosophy. And you could say, as they do sometimes, educate the best, forget the rest. As a society, put your money into the brightest kids who are going to make the biggest inventions and help society. And then really, you know, don't worry about the rest so much. Just give them a basic education. Now, I think that's pretty dumb because most of the big advances in society, they require intellectual capital in the society. I mean, you can invent something like um, with computers or whatever, but to make them work in society, you need to have a, a population that's capable of doing that. So the other point of view, the left-wing view, is called the Finnish model of education, and that is just the opposite. You say, get everybody up to some minimal levels of literacy and numeracy, in, because if they don't have that, they're not going to be able to participate in society. And then really not forget the rest, but don't worry so much about the rest. And I'm, I'm kind of more of that view because um, the father of behavioral genetics, Francis Galton, said, ability will out. And as we were saying before, if you know the, the brightest kids, they'll do pretty well. And especially now with computers and all that's available online, I think, you know, 
the brightest kids, you almost got to stay out of their way and just, you know, you don't have to give them the training. They'll get it, you know? So I do think that's, the point I'm making is that there's no necessary policy implications, except at this general level of recognizing and respecting differences. So when kids don't do well at school, you don't just blame the school, blame the parents, blame the kids. It's much more a matter of schools selecting kids. You know, in different areas, kids perform differently. But in, in England, especially, we have this notorious system at secondary levels where kids are, parents spend hundreds of thousands of euros trying to get their kids into the best schools because the kids in the best schools then go on to the best universities, that sort of thing. But it turns out that the kids in those good schools, select secondary schools, they, we have these national exams that kids take at the end of compulsory school called GCSE exams. And the kids at the best schools get a whole grade higher. Their average grade is something like a B plus, whereas the average grade of kids in the state schools is like a C plus. Big difference. So people say, yeah, well, that's because they went to better schools. It isn't. We've shown, other people have shown, it's if you select the kids who do the best at school for these secondary schools, they do the best at secondary school. But actually, if you control for what you selected them on, like previous ability and intelligence, there's no difference. So all you've done is select, it's self-fulfilling prophecy. Select the best kids who do well at school. Yeah, and they do well at school, but you didn't add any value to that. And it's hard for parents to understand that, especially when they've spent hundreds of thousands of euros getting their kids into the best schools. Moving house so that you're in a better school district. Do you know? There are cases in England where you can move across the street and pay 20% more for the same house just to get into that better school district. And it doesn't make a difference. So I'm, with education, I'm not saying education doesn't matter. Kids have to learn to read and write and do all these other things. And, you know, we can teach them. There, there's homeschooling. You don't have to have schools to do that. But for most of us who want to go out and work and live our lives, schools are nice. You know, they teach kids basic things. But... They don't make a difference. So it doesn't much matter. So again, I would say, relax. You know, kids are going to do pretty well. And in fact, increasingly in England, there's such pressure on these kids, or worst of all, China, with the pressure for doing well on these tests. It's really driving kids to suicide. So I think we've gone too far overboard with this. You know, we ought to relax more and teach I think I, um, you asked me about education. I'll say one more thing about it. You know, I, I do think we've got to teach kids to enjoy learning rather than teaching them to take tests, which is a lot of what we're doing in England, you know? And I have a granddaughter who, you know, uh, was interested in biology and she asked her biology teacher something. She was just interested in this topic. And he said, well, don't worry about it. It won't be on the test. You know, I think the teacher ought to be taken out back and shot, you know, because if you get a kid who's interested in something, you know, you should encourage that interest. So I think we ought to teach kids to enjoy learning and teach them to learn to learn. Because it's said that of the jobs in the future, say 20 years from now, most of them won't ex don't exist now. 
So you can't teach them to to do a specific job or anything. You've got to teach them really increasingly now for lifelong learning. It's not like you get out of university, that's the end of it. For most jobs, that's the beginning of it. That's when you're going to learn what you have to do. And to do that, you probably need, you know, I don't know, programming skills anymore with um, artificial intelligence. I think it'll do the programming for us. But you still need to learn later in life. So I think education ought to make people enjoy learning. And instead, we're turning kids off from learning. I'm just going to rephrase because this is very, very revolutionizing in my brain. You're saying basically it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things if you send your uh, kid to school or if you put all your effort in uh, 20, 30 years of your life to do homeschooling or if you do, do no schooling too much for the kid, like the result would be similar. Yeah. And we stress and- over about the neighborhood that the kids will go for school, about going to the best school, about going in the exams, about the test and all this stuff. And the end of the day, it doesn't matter, which is crazy, (laughs) crazy. It's not. Well, I would qualify that by saying it has to be good enough education. You know, if if you lock a kid in the closet, they're not going to learn to read or write or do do mathematics at all. And some schools, you know, probably are so bad that the kids won't do well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The best best teacher ever. Good enough exactly. teacher you get by a phone. <laughs> I agree. It's going to be more and more that way. And you know, you might think of things like math training. I mean, how much do kids really need to know math when you can do it on your computer? You know, you don't you don't need to solve equations yourself. I mean, if computers are good at anything, they're good at solving equations. So I think, you know, you need to appreciate the problems and you need to be curious. And I think we beat the curiosity out of kids, even at good schools, by, you know, especially with this testing culture that we have in England, you know. So I I agree that um, we should make it fun, make kids enjoy learning. Uh, in your perspective, how you make uh, kids fall in love with learning? Because school did the opposite uh, in me. Like I, mm. I made me hate history, made me hate maths, made me hate science. But after that, I started myself uh, motivating discovery of the world or something. I am in love with these topics. I cannot emphasize you enough how much beauty I find in them. So how do you make uh, that change? Right. Well, the first step is to get away from the traditional model of education. A teacher standing in front of a classroom in England, that would be with 30 kids in the classroom, and lecturing. Because what you'll do then is you'll bore half of the kids who, you know, learn very quickly. The other half will feel frustrated because they don't know what you're saying. So we need to personalize education. And with computers, you can definitely do that. What's the point of a teacher lecturing the kids now? The teacher should be used to help kids, say, who have special problems or kids who are specially advanced. You know, you can point them to better 
online learning programs and that sort of thing. So I think personalizing education is the biggest step. So that, you know, you were probably one of the bright kids who got turned off because people are droning on about some, like in history, teaching kids facts. You've got to memorize these facts because we're going to test you on these facts. That isn't what history is about. You know, history is story, is half of the word of history. You, these stories are amazing. And, you know, you, you can't write fiction better than much of the history that you can read about. So you can make kids love history and, you know, they want to read about it in their spare time. But instead, we teach it as a set of facts that a kid has to learn in order to pass a test. That would turn anybody off. I mean, you know, me too. I was kind of a rebel and I just didn't like that authoritarian approach. These are the facts you must learn, you know. So I think there's a lot we can do and especially taking advantage of computers for personalizing education. I mean, like with math, I do not understand how you could teach kids any way other than with one of these computer programs, like the Khan program or whatever, which is completely personalized. They see how a kid's doing, progressing on tasks, and they don't let them fail. They, If they start not doing well, they take it back down to a simpler level. They go back up again. You know, so the kids who aren't doing well, they don't know they're not doing well. They're just progressing more slowly and they're not failing. And then the kids who do well, you know, you can just go as far and as fast as you want. So I think more and more that's the way it's going to be. And, in, and at university, I really do wonder if we're going to have universities. Why do we need universities? We can have the best people in the world give you these lectures, why are you going to have some, you know, half-baked... They, they are already doing. Like, yeah. I prefer to not go and, and listen from it. I wanted to do business stuff, but doing, listening a stupid university professor in comparison to uh, to Elon Musk teaching business, it sounds like the stupidest thing to do for me. <laughs> yep, and to pay a lot of money. I, I do think to some extent students like universities because of university life, you know, and fair enough. You know what I mean? Hanging out with all these kids your same age, it's very exciting. And that's something too. But that's another part of education. Education isn't like a factory that produces things, you know, N nor is parenting. But with education, we're not trying to produce good little citizens who can do good little jobs, you know, down the line. I think it's partly giving you an opportunity to at university. You know, you're not really working at a full-time job. You get a chance to really get exposed to an intellectual environment. You get to learn a lot of stuff, but learn the stuff you want to learn and learn it a lot. But then also, I think the social aspect of it is not nothing. You know, I don't know if it's worth four years of your life and in England, that would be worth uh, 40,000, 50,000 euros. I don't, economically, for you, it's probably not worth it. You would have been better off taking that money, investing it or whatever, down payment on a house or something like that. But that isn't what life is about. It isn't just like how you're going to end up with a job or a house or whatever. It's a part of your life. And the same thing with parenting. It's a big part of your life. It isn't like a factory where you're producing good little citizens, you know? So you should enjoy that bit of your life and university as well. It's not just 
education or instruction. The instruction is the idea of you're sticking it in people's heads. Instruction. It's education. You're kind of leading it out. And part of that is social. You want to hang around with other people who have interests like you and they, they stimulate you, you know? So I, I think that's a bigger part of it than people realize. And like I was wondering after COVID where I had a class, a cohort of students who never went to university because they couldn't, you know, they couldn't, the university was shut down. And I thought we all went online with teaching. You actually got a lot more personalized education online because you don't have to like set up an appointment to see me in my office. You know, you just say like to chat, you just chat online, you know, it's just, it's all done. You, so I think there were a lot of advantages to it. I was kind of surprised though, when the uh, pandemic, you know, when we, uh, lockdown was over, the students definitely wanted to come back to in-person tasks. Uh, they said, in the question was, in-person teaching, online or hybrid? Well, the students, they wanted in-person teaching. I have a feeling that they didn't want in-person teaching. They wanted in-person university. They wanted to be at a university, I think, to be with all the other students. I don't think it was really that yes. they wanted their lectures in person. Because actually, when you then teach these classes that they said they wanted in person, if you give them a hybrid opportunity, 80% of the class <laughs> will not be there. Because online, they can stop it when they want to. They can go back to it. They can play it over and over again. Whereas you, t you hear a lecture, um, you know, you forget most of it anyway. And so I think there is something to in-person teaching. But if you're going to lecture to a class, as I do, of sometimes 500 students, I mean, why shouldn't I just be on film? I mean, you know, what's the difference? You know, looking up, you know, looking out at 500 students. So, so I wonder, you know, if universities are really needed. The thing I've come to realize, though, that they're not just for education and instruction at at this input level of cognition, because you can do that a lot better online, like you say, with your phone. But it's more of a university life, and and then I don't dismiss that. You know, I think that maybe is a cool bit of people's lives. You know, when they look back on it, I. I know a lot of middle-aged people would say, that was really a great time of life. You know, that was kind of my favorite time of life. So, so it, I could go on and on about for, <laughs> It's a business opportunity for people to create a university that is no teaching, but just gathering of students, <laughs> of, yeah. of people to have fun, go party. <laughs> But to meet people, I think it does change people's lives too, you know, in terms of uh, getting to know people who down the line, you know, now that the, now that it isn't, it, it's such a different world of adulthood now. It isn't like it, when I was growing up, you know, it's like the Bruce Springsteen song, you know, um, at 16 and got, got out of high school, got married, had a kid, got a job. That's all she wrote, you know, something like that. That's the way it used to be. You get a job for life, you know, on the factory line or something like that. Whereas now there are no jobs for life. Everything's freelance and, you know, um, uh, people have lots of different jobs, you know. And I think that could be really good. And, um, you know, you could maybe find what you like to do to a greater extent than just working in a factory where you hate what you do and you just live for the weekends, you know? So I think it can be really exciting. And maybe university would 
help increasingly to get people moving in that direction. So, so I was right that I sense that you have big passion for education uh, <laughs> and, and the right education. And yeah, you have but I don't have any influence, unfortunately. I wish I had more influence on it. I can't <laughs> give up. Uh, it's really very backward, you know, in education. It's the one area of the social sciences that still hasn't really come around to genetics, which is a big mistake because all the things we teach, it, cognitive abilities are the most heritable traits. And yet, you know, you look at what teachers, you know, teacher training courses, you look at their books, that sort of thing, nothing on genetics. Whereas I think genetics is the most important thing that parents need to know about kids and teachers need to know about students. And that's another and pet that's peeve of you mine. think one of the reasons that, that you are doing all this podcast and stuff. Exactly right. Yeah. I've given up on teachers. Uh, you know, I think teachers recognize genetic influence, but at the higher levels, the policy makers and stuff, you know, you just can't get them to realize that they have to come to terms with these DNA scores. Parents are going to be coming to them saying, look, my kid has a high risk of being reading disabled. What are we going to do about it? Let's not wait until they're at second or third grade and then fail at reading. Let's do something at beforehand. Because if you, you know, you, you wait till kids fail on reading tests, then there's a lot of collateral damage, you know? I mean, they're kind of branded as stupid and, you know, and you can fix reading problems. You can help kids to read, you know, even though they'll, they'll find it more difficult than other kids, they need to learn in different ways. Kids who are good at reading, you almost, uh, one of my sons, I, I had this uh, wife, I've been married several times, and she had this kid, and she was, this was in the 70s, and she was um, someone who felt like, uh, um, we just, we shouldn't teach kids stuff. So she was determined, even though she was a, a head of a, a, day, a daycare center for kids, she was determined that her kid wasn't going to learn to read. She, she thought it was bad that parents were pushing their kids to read early, you know. So she actually went out of her way not to have her kid read. Well, that kid learned to read in about two weeks, was just learning to read newspapers. Once got the hang of it once other people started interfering with the mother's plans. This kid was just reading, you know. It didn't need special phonics or special training. But I think kids who have trouble learning to read, they need more help. And you can help them. There are definitely good programs for helping kids to learn to read. But again, it's personalized. You know, some kids can't learn to read because they really do have dyslexia. They have visual problems. You know, so that makes it harder for them to learn to read. Well, you don't want to give that kid the same training program you'd give other kids who really have trouble with comprehension. So, yep. So there's a lot we can do here. I have one question that I ask every guest. If I give you $1 trillion, how do you spend it for maximum impact in the world? Was that $1 trillion or $1 billion? Or one million. One what did you say? Trillion. Trillion. Great. Okay. Trillion. Well, there. Um, what I would what I would do is I'm very concerned about um, inequalities, and um, you know I think in all advanced countries that's really um, 
going to be a major problem. You know, it's partly what I think is causing the divisions in, especially like you see in America between the haves and haves nots, you know? So from a genetic point of view, this, I'm going to do this from a genetic point of view rather than a straight political philosophical point of view. I would, if you take the kids from the most socially disadvantaged environments, you know, like kids who are on welfare and who don't have enough to eat, you know, they're really, we can do this in England, that there are kids who qualify for free school meals, for example. You know, they're, they're well below the poverty line for income. If you take DNA from those kids, you'll find that some of those kids have very high genetic scores for learning ability. You know, even though their parents weren't educated, as I said, you know, Kids are 50% like their parent, but that means they're 50% not like their parents. So if you take a population of kids from the worst environments, you'll find a big distribution of their genetic scores. And I think we're wasting that intellectual capital because in that environment, they're going to get ground down. And very soon, they're not going to do well at school, even though they have the genetic potential. So what I would like to do is to test kids genetically beginning with the most socially disadvantaged environments and to give those kids a leg up, to just give them opportunities to develop. And that's good for society too, because those kids are going to be as bright as any kids in the population. So that's how I would like to start. But what I would like to do with a trillion, I could do it easily, is get DNA for all kids. But that's going to happen anyway. You know, eventually all kids... In England, they're now piloting it for 100 million euros, is to get DNA testing on newborns from a medical point of view, because you want to intervene early for these medical sorts of problems. And so you can get the DNA at birth. And once you get DNA once, you can do all of these things I'm talking about, you know, in terms of testing. So you could then predict about their obesity, their cardiovascular risk, alcoholism, how well they'll do at school, whether they have reading problems or not, from that one bit of DNA. So I would begin to personalize education. And I'm working with a company um, called GEMS Education, who's responsible for teaching 40% of all the kids in the United Arab uh, Emirates. And it's a, it's a charitable organization by this very, this billionaire guy who wants to he thinks the best thing you can do for society is educate kids properly. And so he's very keen on this idea of personalization. And because he controls this, he can make decisions that's so hard to make within educational systems. You know, they're so bogged down in bureaucracy and to make any change is very difficult. I kind of give up. I don't have enough energy and time in life, you know, to do it. But it'd be kind of neat to work. I'm looking forward to working with the GEMS education for that reason. And if you had a trillion uh, dollars, you could do it yourself, probably. Do you know? You could just begin to do this. And I think it'll happen, though, because once, say, you know, with ADHD, hyperactivity, attention deficit disorder, you know, 10% of kids now are getting diagnosed as ADHD. And in the U.S. especially, the main treatment is drugs. You know, they give those kids amphetamines 
that's the main, it's called Ritalin, but it's basically an amphetamine. Well, if you could show, and this is going to happen fairly soon, I think, that some kids with ADHD will respond very well to Ritalin, but other kids, it'll be bad for them, just like it's bad for you and me to take too much amphetamine. When I was in university, that's what kids did. We, it's no magic that you give hyperactive kids without much attention span, you give them amphetamines. Because back in the 60s, that, that's what you did. You study for a college exam, you take speed because it makes you focused. But you take it too much and you start getting paranoid and it really does mess you up. So if we could find a genetic predictor of whether your kid will respond to amphetamines or not, every parent's gonna want it. You don't wanna give your kid drugs if it's actually gonna be bad for them. So that's the way this is gonna happen. And I think it'll really happen first on the medical side. We're gonna realize that for preventive medicine, you need the DNA prediction. Once you get it for that, you can use it for anything. And then, you know, so I think um, it's starting to happen. There are some countries like Finland and Estonia where if you go into the hospital and they take blood, they ask if you want your DNA tested. And 85% of the people say, yes, you know, why not? They'll tell you if you have a risk for heart attacks, for example. And whether they make the DNA available to you is another issue, but um, 30 million people have paid to have their DNA tested by these companies like 23andMe. So, you know, 30 million people paying about, it's about 150 euros to have that done. So people are doing it themselves. So I think it's only a matter of time until we, everybody has their DNA. I mean, it, it just takes a, a, a tiny memory stick. You don't need much memory on it. You know, you've got 3 billion base pairs of DNA. That's it. That's all you need is the digital information on 3 billion base pairs. And that's you genetically. And from that, then we can do everything why, else I'm talking why about. Why not 8 billion? Why not 8 billion? Because we have 23 chromosomes and there's 3 billion base pairs of DNA on each chromosome. So you could say six. Is that what you're saying? Six? Because you get one chromosome from your mother, one from your father. So although there are 3 billion base pairs of DNA, you actually have double that. You have one chromosome from your mother, one from your father. But what we're talking about here is at each step in the spiral staircase of DNA, each chromosome, you can have one of two alleles. So you can be like, there's four, it's a four letter alphabet, A, C, T's and G's. And at any base pair, any spiral step, any step in the spiral staircase of DNA, you could have an AT or a TC or a TG or a TT. That TT, that double um, amino acid it's called, that is what we mean by your genotype at that locus on the chromosome. But anyway, 3 billion, or if you, th you think about both your mother's and your father's chromosome, 6 billion. But still, it's a trivial amount of information these days, and a memory stick can easily handle that. The other bit of it is that for 99% of all those 3 billion base pairs of DNA, there are no real differences between us. All humans have basically the same gene, the same 
spiral staircase, the step in the spiral staircase. And so you could only really need to know about the 1% that differs because that's what we're talking about. The DNA differences that make us difference. But, but the hot thing now is you sequence all 3 billion base pairs of DNA. And that's what you'd want because sometimes, even though 99.999% of all of us have the same genes at, at this one locus, it's important sometimes to know that you have one of those rare mutations, like one in a million or something like that. So why not? So if you get all the sequence of DNA, all 3 billion base pairs, that's it. That's all you inherit. That's all that's genetic. It doesn't change from the moment of conception. So genetically, that's the end of the story. That's all we need to know. So, so even though you don't really need to have all 3 billion base pairs, um, that's, what, that's what's going to happen. It's happening now. There are companies that will do that for you. I, uh, this is a big topic, but I want you to touch briefly. All this stuff will change, your work will change everything by artificial intelligence now? By artificial intelligence, did you say? Yes. Sorry, I yes. didn't quite hear that. By, well, I mean, Arti that isn't my area of expertise, but... But it will. But yeah. Do you think it will influence a lot I, your your area of of this stuff that you are doing? Sure, it's going to change everything. You know, I mean, the, it, it, writing analysis. Like if we do, you know, scripts for analysis, you can ask Chat GPT four, you know, to do that for you, or what it can do really well. You know, because algorithms, man, you know, that's what computers are all about. So they. That's what AI is about, is algorithms, basically. So, yeah, I can do that. But, you know, I've just messed around with it a bit. You know, like you write an abstract for a paper and you say, sometimes you have to write a lay summary, you know, a summary that's less in scientific language and more in the public language. And I've just said, write, write me a lay version of this abstract. And it's amazing. It blew me away. I mean, it's not just like in computerese. It's literary. You know, I mean, it really is every bit as good as I could do. And, and that kind of fascinates me because we always thought that robots and artificial intelligence was going to wipe out lower level jobs, you know, like routine, boring jobs. But now this level of artificial intelligence, it's going to attack uh, substitute or you could say optimize these higher level jobs, you know, using them as co-pilots people talk about. But I just think it's tremendously exciting. I know people are worried about the risks. You know, Sam Harris worries about existential risks, you know, that they're going to decide, AI is going to decide they don't need us and write us out of the picture. You know, I don't know, but like you, well, I'm an optimist too, and I just think it's really exciting, and I think it's going to change a lot of what we do. And if you think about 3 billion base pairs of DNA, certainly uh, artificial intelligence can pick out patterns of genetic effects that we could never, ever do ourselves, you know, these higher order interactions. It's very good. It's like face recognition, you know, if you say, here's people with this particular weird disease, and here's their 3 billion base pairs of DNA. Maybe it isn't just one. 
Maybe you're picking up a combination of two rare mutations that only happens one in 10,000 times. But you got these three people who have the disorder. And here's, here's a training set of 10,000 other people. You know, it's just like face recognition. You just say, distinguish these faces. And, you know, just the sort of thing that AI is really, really good at. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about it. it. It's not nothing specific to genetics that I know I can think of but it's gonna affect everything in science, everything that we do from planning papers, you know, like, what do we know about this area? Well, you could spend, you know, when I was in graduate school, we didn't have computers and we had to go to the library and you ask for this article and then you find the next article, you know, you spend a day and maybe you've looked at a dozen articles. Now it's just seconds. And now with AI, you don't even have to do that. You just ask chat GPT, what do we know about inflammation as it affects schizophrenia? Or how about in people who are both schizophrenic and depressed? It's just amazing how it comes up with stuff. Increasingly, though, people are pointing out it also hallucinates. It really does make things up when it doesn't know something. So you got to be a little careful with that. But I just find it totally amazing. I mean, do you agree? Are you worried about it? Huh. Uh, I'm taking one step further that, that debate, and I'm I'm if I'm worried about, and I uh, think that uh, even we don't need to worry at all because even if they kill us, the robots kill us. Let maybe it's for the greater good of evolution. <laughs> maybe we don't. Maybe it's, uh, <laughs> maybe we don't know. Yeah what we are going to miss if they kill us. Maybe, maybe they kill us and then they go and discover other worlds and like uh, other planets with people inside. So uh, <laughs> I yeah. don't know. It's a bit crazy what I'm saying, but... <laughs> well, carbon-based life isn't the only form of life, right? You could have a silicon-based life. Like in terms of sending men to Mars, you know, which is Elon Musk's thing, um, why are we sending people? Because it's going to be a one-way trip no matter what they say, you're not going to be able to assemble the resources on Mars to send people back. But why would you even want to send people there? I mean, it's such a horrible environment. Why not do it in silicon? You know, you, you can send artificial intelligence there and maybe it can reproduce and maybe it will end up, you know, just being so much more advanced than us. Probably wouldn't care about us, but if it did, it wipes us out. But as you're saying, that's evolution, you know, they, they can evolve and silicon can reproduce, you know, without the constraints of biological carbon-based reproduction. Yes, and it kind of ex um, teleport. <laughs> it can yeah. do so many things that we... But it, it's, a, it's a very interesting uh, time that you are living. Uh, I, I think it I'm really a bit is. more luckier than you because... I'm 23 and I'm going to see a lot of these things. <laughs> yeah, I'm envious. Talking probably. Exactly right. <laughs> things are going faster and faster, aren't they? You know, it's, it's hard to imagine um, what's going to happen next because I just heard a podcast with uh, Frank Fukuyama who wrote The End of History. Well, can you imagine someone who wrote, okay, it's all over now. History has ended. You know, he, he was talking about the political atmosphere, but even at that level, of course, things have changed totally. 
since he wrote that. You know, so um, I, 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 I'm just very envious that you're going to have another 75 years, I hope, to take advantage of these advances. And, and maybe things will change so much. Maybe you've got a couple hundred years, you know. I mean, it's not impossible. Maybe we turn you into silicon. But if it's just exactly as you, it has every thought, everything that you have in your brain. And, and it's thinking like you. And it could even have an emotion. It's you. I mean, you know, it's like you, your clone. And okay, we get rid of your body, but you're still there at some level. I mean, it's not impossible that we can change the silicon yes, rather and than carbon. And and it and it's funny because this is a bit crazy scenario, but maybe you die and all, and we don't. We never die, and like you are the the last person that died. Yeah. <laughs> it would be a bit unfortunate if nobody dies, and you guys are the last generation of people that is dying. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I I wouldn't mind that terribly because I you know okay I am going to die, but I'm. I've had a good life and um, that's, that's part of this um, uh, mindfulness stuff too, you know, in stoicism, you know, thinking, yeah, I've had a good innings and all we've really got is what we've got now anyway, you know, so you've got to really be in the moment and enjoy it. And, and then, you know, not, not worry. I, I find as people get older, you know, my parents died at 97 a couple of years ago and they were living in an old people's home but I was quite amazed. Nobody there is freaked out about death. They don't want to die a horrible death, but they're not worried. They laugh. They joke about it. You know, so-and-so kicked the bucket the other day. You know, they're just kind of reconciled, accepting of death. And we all should be. We shouldn't wait until we get old. We should realize, you know, life is finite and you've got to live for the moment and experience life to the full. You know, not not to just think, Oh, if only I get that job or that girl or that house or that car, then I'll be happy. You know, you got to live in this moment and love it. And to the point where you're saying, well, if I died now, it's okay. I've had a good innings. I'm happy. Not, and not just to what, get to that what, when you get old. What do you want to leave behind in this world? What do I want to leave behind? Are you saying? Is that what you said? Well, I'm pleased with what I've left behind, but I'm not, um, it doesn't matter. In the long run, you know, n if anybody's doing something because they think they're changing the world, they should probably spend more time thinking about them, what they're doing and how they're enjoying life on a day-to-day -day moment, because none of it really makes a difference in the long run. I mean, I think I've done some things, you know, that are pretty revolutionary and they'll probably have an effect, I hope they do, to the good, you know, making parents relax and maybe changing the education system. But I don't fool myself into thinking that's what made my life worthwhile. I've just had fun. I like doing what I'm doing and I enjoy it on a day-to-day -day basis. I still have good students, good ideas. It's exciting and fun. And, you know, um, that for me is is really what it's about. And I don't, you know, it's nice if you feel you've left the world a better place, for sure. But we don't real we delude ourselves if we think, you know, we're going to have such a big effect on people because, you know, we're not that special. And other people will, anything we would have done, anything I've done, other people 
would have done it eventually. I think we would have gotten to this point anyway. So, you know, it's not to be modest. It's just to say, uh, in a way, it sounds bad, doesn't it, to say, you know, it's great that I've done some things that I hope will help society, but really what motivates me on a day-to-day basis is I just like doing what I'm doing. I like having these scientific problems and trying to solve them and working with bright people, you know? So it's basically, it's another way of saying having fun. I love you. Thank you for your time. <laughs> uh, I'm so grateful that you took this time. And yeah, it was great it talking was to been, this, this was the, one of the most beautiful hours, uh, two hours of my life. Huh. Well, very nice of you to say so. <laughs> I hope your listeners like it too. But um, who cares? You and I had a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank okay. you for watching, guys. Right. Bye-bye. We love you. Oh, bye-bye. <laughs>